On August 22, 2004, while on deployment in Iraq, Michael Jernigan's platoon was on patrol when it was hit by a pair of artillery shells buried under the ground. He was thrown from his Humvee and 45% of his skull was crushed in. The road to recovery was long, but 17 years later, he remains committed because he got a second chance in life. He's a man of endurance, character, and commitment, and we meet him on today's Pick Up the Six podcast. Michael Jernigan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing great, man. I am. I'm so thrilled to uh, to meet you and and to have this conversation with you. And uh, this is part of our ongoing uh, series in partnership with our friends over at the Congressional Medal of Honor Society. You have a brand new medal around your neck that you were just <laughs> awarded this week. Uh, that we're going to talk heavy. about. Yeah, it's heavy, Brian. It's heavy. It, it is, but it looks it looks great on you. We're going to talk about what that is and why you got it uh, and the reason behind it. And uh, just a really neat thing that Congressional Medal of Honor Society does in uh, part of just their continued mission. But I want to get to know you a little bit, Michael Jernigan, and let our okay. listeners get to know you a little bit. So you're a Marine man, but, but where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I originally, I was born in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, my father got a commission in the army when I was about a year and a half old. So we started moving around for a few years. Um, now my dad was enlisted in the Marine Corps before that. So when I was about 14 years old, he retired from the army and we moved back to St. Petersburg, Florida. But, you know, I lived in Derrida, Louisiana, Roswell, New Mexico, Lawton, Oklahoma, uh, Fort Hill, man at Fort Sill for a little bit. Well, as a, as a, as a young child, thank right. the Lord, I didn't actually have to do duty there. You know, um, we, uh, my, my dad was, uh, was at Shepherd Air Force Base. So right across the Red River from there. And I spent okay. two years when I graduated from college in Wichita Falls, Texas, working at a TV station. And so uh, made some trips See, up the lot and every now and then. So I'm, I'm in Fort Worth right now. We're, we're still wondering about the panhandle. Like it's a lot like Oklahoma up there. It's just flat. It, it, it is, um, yeah. you know, where we were in Wichita Falls, you're not but 15 minutes to be in Oklahoma. And, and if you oh, I know. I, the yeah. show, I love this story. If you remember the show King of the Hill, right? Remember that? Oh, yeah. That show? Oh, yeah. Those guys, uh, they had this moment where Bobby and his dad were up in Wichita Falls and they were freaking out because they were all Sooner fans up there and they couldn't deal with it that all these Texans <laughs> were Sooner fans. <laughs> and his son's like, I want to be an OU fan. <laughs> that's, that's that part of North Texas up there. But it's all good. Yeah, man, where you are in Fort Worth area, not too far from where we spent a few years uh, in that North Texas area. So traveled around a bit, right? Military brat kid. When did yeah. you know, hey, I'm destined for the military and I'm destined for the Marines? You know, it's interesting. I always wanted to be a Marine when I was a little kid, right? And then uh, when I was in high school, I, I kind of changed my mind. I thought I'd go to college, you know, but I wasn't the greatest student and I kind of had a misspent youth. So my college was uh, St. Petersburg Junior College, okay. right? And I had four and a half glorious freshman years there. <laughs> um, and after after that, I was about 23 years old. I was bartending on, on the beach at, at the Don Cesar Beach Resort on St. Pete Beach. And I was drinking heavily and uh, 
going nowhere. I was a junior college dropout and my life was just going nowhere. And I, I said to myself, you know, something's got to give here because I, I can't live like this. So I dried myself out and I, I walked into the Marine Corps recruiting office and just, you know, decided to fulfill this childhood dream I always had. You know, I'm a third generation Marine. My, uh, my mom's dad was a career Marine. My dad was a Marine and then a soldier. And, you know, it just felt right. When Mike, when was this? What what year did all that would have been? That would have been about that time. Would have been two thousand and two. So it was probably around August of o two that I started the recruiting process. But it's but it's it's post nine eleven, right? Oh yeah, it was post nine eleven. So it's post nine eleven. Take me. Do you remember that day? And and something probably churned in you on that day, right? You know, uh, to be very honest with you, the, the first thing I thought about on 9-11 was my godfather, who was still active duty army at the time. And, uh, you know, when they hit the Pentagon, uh, the first thing I was I, gosh, I hope my Uncle Mike's not there, you know, and uh, a few other things. Just I think all of America cried that day. Mm. You know, that was that was a very sad day for all of us. So. It, it, it didn't move me, but it didn't move me to join the military. You know, that wasn't the catalyst for it. It really was the fact that my life was going nowhere and that I needed a change uh, that got me to join the military. You know, on October 18th of 2002, which was my 24th birthday, I got sworn in at the processing station in Tampa by my father. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. So my, my father actually made me a Marine. Well, That's amazing. He, he swore me in. The drill instructors made me a Marine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you about that. I got to tell you, one of the proudest moments uh, of my life was the day that my brother graduated from college uh, at Oklahoma State University and yeah. was commissioned into the Air Force. And my father in uniform, a general at the time, uh, had his right hand up and, and swore him in at that moment. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's cool. It is just really cool. Hey, quick, quick aside. We had some family and friends there at the processing station and one of our other buddies, Mike Bayer, um, I came out and because I had somehow accumulated enough credit hours in college, they made me an E2, a private first class. Hey, all um, right. Look at you. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so I walked out and I said, Hey, look at that. I'll never be a private. And, and Mike Bayer popped up and he goes, Hey, don't speak too soon. You can always go down in rank. <laughs> Right. Right. Mike so, had been in the army back in the uh, back in the fifties, and yeah. he put it into perspective for me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You might want. Luckily, I never went down in rank. I, I only went up. Of course not. So that childhood kind of dream that maybe yeah. for a little while, I don't say faded away, but was gone, is back now, right? And, and oh yeah, and now you're in it. And you said they made you know they made you a marine. He swore you in, but they made you one. Well, just just take me into all that. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because like I got in a van in Tampa in the middle of the, you know, like in the evening and then drove, they drove us to Paris Island, South Carolina. You know, you get on the Island in the middle of the night, it's pitch black and, um, they rip the door open of the van and the drill instructor starts screaming his head off and you run to those yellow footprints and, you know, three days into boot camp, I thought I made a mistake. I wanted to go home as, you know, nobody, it just, was so overwhelming. But, you know, as that training process goes along, you start to buy in. You know, I, I think a lot of Marines will tell you that they broke in boot camp. You get broke down and you get built up as a Marine. And I mean, I broke early 
because I realized my father was a Marine Corps drill instructor back in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. So I had, I had had a lot of information on, on boot camp before I even got there. And the quicker you break and buy in, the, the easier it's going to go. But I mean, I had a blast. I was finally around a bunch of guys that thought the way I thought that really enjoyed uh, what we were doing. We really loved our country, you know, and there's something to be said. And a lot of people will tell you this that work with their hands. You know, when you put in a hard day's work of physical labor, there's a satisfaction at the end of the day that you got something accomplished. Yeah. There's, there's no you know? doubt about that. Yeah, And going and through being, that process, being a bartender and a waiter and all of that stuff I did before, there wasn't that same satisfaction in a job. Yeah. You know, the Marine Corps was the first time, I mean, Paris Island is the first time I could stand tall and be proud of what I was doing with my life mm -hmm. to, you know, it was the first time that what I was doing really made a difference in not just one other person's lives, but multiple other people's lives. Yeah. Um, you know, and you just, you just don't get that same level of satisfaction out of a lot of the employment opportunities in the civilian world. You're, you're thrust into this world of being part of something that is so much bigger than just you. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, they, they do a great job in, in boot camp of drilling into you the history of the Marine Corps and what it is to actually be a Marine and what that means. And, you know, you start to realize that, you know, I'm one individual, but I'm an individual that represents the entire history of the Marine Corps. And when people see me outside, they, they realize, okay, that's a Marine. And they expect all Marines to be one way because that's just the way we portray ourselves. Yeah. I mean, it's even emblematic in the Marine Corps, you know, theme, right. And, and just thinking through the rich history of all that it is. Oh yeah. Uh, it seems like you found a home there pretty quick. I did. I did. It was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's 2002, man. And, and the world is is getting ready uh, for some pretty serious uh, wartime yeah. efforts here, right? Two thousand. Yeah, unbeknownst to me, I had no I had no idea about that whole Iraq thing. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I enlisted in O in O two. I got to boot camp in November of two thousand and two. I graduated in January of two thousand and three. Uh, so I missed uh, Thanksgiving. I missed Christmas, and I think the worst of all, and one of the hardest to swallow, was I missed the Tampa Bay Buccaneers winning their first Super Bowl. <laughs> You know, and for a guy like me, you know, I came home from the hospital in a Tampa Bay Buccaneers onesie and uh, a, a lifelong Bucks fan. And that was the hardest part about well, listen, Bucs. man, over these last two years, you've been <laughs> rocking and rolling, bro. I mean, you got hey, world, you got a Super Bowl. You got yeah. a cut back to back. I mean, y'all. Yes, man. we got American League pennant for the Rays last year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we, we're now thinking about changing the name to uh, Champa Bay. Champa Bay. I thought it was Tampa Bay for a little bit with Brady. Well, yeah, you that know, works. Time. The only thing greater than Tom Brady is Tom Brady. That's just, <laughs> you know, if Tom Brady could ever really perform like Tom Brady, then he'd be a Tom Brady. He'd be a Tom Brady. That's a fair yeah. assessment. That's great. I love it. All right, man. Take as, me as up. You, Go ahead. As you can tell, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Buccaneers fan. Absolutely. Just, just a little bit, just a little bit, but it's all good. All right. Take me up to deployment 2004 and heading into Iraq. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I actually got to deploy before I went to Iraq. Uh, when I got out of uh, infantry training battalion school of infantry, I went to uh, a subunit for second Marine regiment because my unit was forward deployed to the invasion of Iraq. Mm -hmm. And I learned an important lesson in the Marine Corps and that's the voluntold, right? And they took about 75 of us, put us in a formation about six weeks later, 
they'd been in the fleet and they said, hey, congratulations, gentlemen, you all volunteered to go to Okinawa, Japan. Right. right. So I wound up going to Okinawa, Japan for uh, six months on a unit deployment with uh, weapons company, first battalion, 25th Marines and had a blast in Okinawa. It was just one of the best duty stations the Marine Corps has. And it was my last month in Oki that I got a knock on the door from our police sergeant, uh, Sergeant Borneman and uh, Borneo. And he asked me, he's like, hey, do you want to cross deck? You, you know, you're going back to the fleet. You want to go to Iraq? And it took me just, I don't even think a second to say, hell yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I want to go to Iraq. My Marines, your entire job as a Marine is to fight wars. That's yep. um, the Marine Corps does two things. We, we, we make Marines and we win America's battles, mm. you know, and uh, I came home, went on, went on leave for a couple of weeks and then got back to my, my new unit, easy company, second battalion, second Marines. And I mean, we started a, a rapid, rapid training to deploy. And we wound up, I think it was March 3rd or March 4th of 2004 is when we deployed uh mm. to iraq you know through kuwait yeah yeah so when you got there when you're in country what what do, what do you remember noticing feeling when you got boots on the ground in iraq so first you fly into kuwait right and you fly into kuwait and they uh they, they swipe your ID. So you now, now you're getting tax-free pay because you're in a combat zone. Uh, you know, I remember flying in and they put us on these buses and they drove us to Camp Yudari. And as we're driving through the desert to Camp Yudari, one of the coolest things I saw was a, a herd of camels like running through the desert, you know, uh, which is something that you've only seen in like watching Lawrence of Arabia and that type of stuff. It was, it was really cool. But uh, I spent two weeks in Kuwait before I got to go to Iraq and I got stuck on a rear party. So I actually flew into Baghdad International Airport. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you think about flying into a war zone. Right. You're going to be all ready. You're going to rush off. You're going to put a security around the plane, the whole nine yards, because you never know what's going to happen. Right. And it was anticlimactic at best. Right. We fly in a C-130. We land. Uh, they. They dropped the, the ramp in the back to roll the, the big cargo containers off. And we actually just walked down the stairs, right? And as we walked down the stairs of the plane and we hit the tarmac, there's a guy with a beard and sunglasses on. And he's just sitting there and he's like, hey, you know, your unit's not here to pick you up yet. You guys can hang out right over here. And there's a key dunk, like a little convenience store where you can buy right. some I mean, there's you know, no guy so with a sign with your name on it that's going to drive you to work. <laughs> it, it sounds like know, it's kind of close. <laughs> you're you're expecting to rush out the back of a C-130 full yeah, like arm. it's go time. Let's do it. Yeah, it's, it's, we're going to war, baby. Right. No, there's a gee dunk over there. You guys can get some pokey bait and kind of wait for your convoy. They're going to be picking you up in a couple hours. <laughs> right. It was it's a little different than and, what you expected. Yeah, you know, and that was my introduction to uh, to Iraq. Um, and then the the convoy picked us up, and we drove out to Mamadia, Iraq, which was mm. where we were first uh, in March of two thousand and four. And you know, the I don't want excitement is one word you could use. Anxiety, nervousness is another. You know, words. There's a lot of adjectives you can describe that feeling with. Anticipation. Right. anticipation, yeah. you know, the, the, the lack of not, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, you climb on the back of a seven ton and you're driving from Biop to Mamadia. Uh, we're seeing Iraq for the first time, right? And you're in a war zone and you don't know what to expect. I, we didn't know 
what to expect at all. And I, it was just a lot of emotion, you yeah. know. And then when we got to Mamadia, the 82nd, there was a battalion from the 82nd Airborne there. And that's who we were replacing. Um, so, you know, getting to talk to those guys who had been there since the invasion, they kind of locked us on and let us know what to expect. So what were you guys doing? What, what was day in a life of like during that beginning of that duty? You know, it was a, a lot of patrolling. You know, we were doing support and stability operations, uh, trying to reinforce the the police in the area. Uh, they were standing up the Iraqi National Guard at that time. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of like climbing on trucks and just making our presence known. Um, being out on the streets, patrolling day and night, 24 hours a day, you got people out there uh, to let the bad guys know that this isn't this isn't a town that you're welcome in. That's you right. know, and to let the the civilians that live in that town know that you're safe with us here. And and I'll be honest with you, 82nd Airborne, they did a great job of securing Mamadia. And when we took over that city, it was a very safe city, you know, relatively speaking, as far as cities go in Iraq, yeah, in yeah. the Anbar province at the time, it was a pretty safe city. Yeah, but it's not Fallujah or, or someplace where it's. Well, it wasn't Fallujah or Ramadi at the time, but uh you know, that, that was to come later. Yeah. Hey, did you get a chance to, to meet, engage with, or even just see, you know, regular uh, citizen Iraqi people throughout the process? Yeah. You know, Mama D is a city. I don't know what the population is. If I had to estimate, I'd probably say 50,000 people, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and we dealt with the locals uh, on a regular basis. You know, sometimes we were, we were getting information from them. Uh, sometimes we were just talking to them. Sometimes, you know, I was a Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps at the time, which is an E3, right? So I wasn't doing a lot of the negotiations and anything like that. But, you know, our officers were and our staff and COs were, you know, but we dealt with a lot of the locals. You know, buying bread from them, buying Coca-Cola, all the kids are selling stuff. Right, um, right. You know, uh, getting out and playing soccer with the kids. I remember actually sitting there playing soccer with a kid holding an M16. You know, I was holding an M16 and I'm booting a soccer ball around with like six kids. Uh, you know, the kids were the coolest thing because when the kids were around, we knew stuff was all right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And when the kids started getting getting scratchy and started moving around, that's when we started. That's when our, our spidey senses went up. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. But yeah, we got to interact with the locals on a decent amount. It's more in Mamadia than anywhere else. You know, I was also in Fallujah in April of 04 for Vigilant Resolve. And then I was in Al Zaydan, uh, May, June, and July to deal with the Abu Ghraib prison scandal as that broke right. out and sure. retaliatory attacks there. And then in August, we went back to Mamadia. Uh, but Mamadia was the place where we really got to, to mix with the locals the most. There was a language barrier. Mm hmm uh, for a lot of it, but, uh, you know, I can remember like using just chalk I mean, it was like rock chalk, whatever it was from the ground and kids, you know, writing on the wall, I was showing them how to write their names in English and they were showing me how to write my name in Arabic. Yeah. It was cool. Yeah. You, and you can tell when, when th this group of folks wants us here and maybe if there's a group that didn't, I, yeah. I would guess. They, they, the kids always wanted us there, but yeah. I mean, we also had pockets full of candy. <laughs> sure, sure. I get you know, it. it's amazing. It's amazing what a what a piece of candy that translates, do doesn't it, brother? That translates. Oh, you know, it does, man. That, that is some great peacekeeping skills. You know, a stick of gum or a piece of candy can can dissolve a lot of situations. Yeah. 
All right. So you get there in March, you know, you're going through, uh, the daily, the daily grind really, you know, as you're doing these. Yeah. I mean, I got, I got hit by my first IED 10 days in country. Uh, we were doing an IED sweep on a, on a dirt road and I, I stupidly got too close to a blinking bush, right? It was a, like a piece of tumbleweed in the middle of the road that had a blue blinking light on it. And I thought it would be a great idea to investigate that. So I stuck my face in the bush and I saw a number 10 can with a cell phone tape to it. And I, uh, I leaped up and ran and screamed and Mm -hmm. everybody ran and the thing detonated and luckily nobody was hurt, but I did learn that, you know, if you see something, say something. And if you want to run really fast, scream like a girl. That's a, that's the way everybody's attention. <laughs> so if you can hit like a high pitched 11 year old girl, let, well, you're going to tell, you're going to tell when something's really wrong based on right. The, the, noise oh, yeah. oh yeah. I could have, I could have beat Hussein Bolt that day. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So, you know, but I mean, that was, that was one of those things. I remember uh, coming back to the fob in Mamadia and, you know, I put my rifle up on my rack and I'm peeling my flak jacket on and that's when it set in. Yeah. Right. That we're really in a war here. Yeah. And, that, you know, what we're here to do is is more than just support and stabilize this country. We're here to hunt out an enemy that's trying to kill us. Yeah. And that was that was the day that it really set in. So you got to figure this is almost three, four weeks, three and a half weeks from when I first landed in Kuwait until I really start seeing action. Yeah. And you're like, okay, that's that's just, it really kind of locks in for you then at that point. Yeah. You know? That's, that's when it becomes clear and concise and the mission is quite evident of what we're here to do. Yep. All right. So there's a lot that happens between that moment and this fateful day, August 22nd, 2004. But if you uh, don't mind, t- take us into it and, and tell us the story of what happens to you and your platoon on that day. On August 22nd. So yes, we're uh, driving in a pickup style Humvee. Right. And uh, from what I understand now, so I don't remember getting blown up. Right. And I think the, the Lord blessed me there, but my buddies have told me what happened. So we've recon, you know, I've been able to reconstruct it. We were meeting with the police in, in Mamadia in August there, just normal. We met with the police a lot. And as we were leaving, the way it worked was there was one road that had a 90 degree left turn on it. So we would leave the police station and we'd take that 90 degree turn Unfortunately, normally you would want to go different routes in and out all the time. But to go to the police station, there was only one way in and one way out. So as we're leaving, uh, you pass this playground. There was a playground right where that 90 degree turn is. And we're turning that corner and the blast hit. You know, and I was thrown 20 meters out of the vehicle. Uh, my buddy, Chris Belchick, Corporal Belchick, was killed. Uh, he was our only KIA, the driver, Corporal Creel. I'm not sure what happened to him. Um, you know, I, I understand his foot got really damaged. Um, my buddy, uh, Brenneman, David Brenneman took shrapnel into his forehead and they wound up lobotomizing his right temporal lobe. Wow. Um, so he developed epilepsy and has some short-term memory issues. And, uh, my buddy Fadley really and truly just took shrapnel to his arm you know, and never left the country, but I had 45% of my cranium crushed in. So this whole piece where my hand is, my whole forehead is an acrylic plate. You know, I got a scar that starts over here and runs all the way over the top of my head to over here. I had shrapnel enter my right eye, exit my left eye. It kind of eviscerated everything in between. I had my index finger and my small finger on my right hand 
reattached and my right hand was reconstructed and I took shroud to my left knee and I fractured my patella and I cut my femoral artery. Um, you know, so I, I put in a day's work that day. Yeah, you sure, you sure did. Yeah. When did, when did you wake up? When did you come to, you know, I, you might not remember all that. You probably don't days, remember all that. Yeah. Days later in Bethesda, Maryland, yeah. you know, so I went all to the, the way 30- back in the States, all the way back. Oh yeah. At Walter Reed. Yeah. So I was not knocked unconscious when I was Whoa. blown up. Whoa. Right. I, from what I've been told, I stood up and was looking for screaming for my rifle and everything. Um, my corpsman, our, our hospital corpsman, our medic, uh, hospital and third class, Christopher Thompson, grabbed me and he put me down on the ground and, you know, started treating my wounds. And, uh, you know, my my buddy Godius, Corporal Godius, Jay, threw me in the back of a Humvee and grabbed a driver and literally left everybody there and drove me back to the FOB immediately because I needed medical attention. I was going to die if I did not get medical attention quickly. Right. And we, we couldn't get a couldn't get a helo medevac in quick enough, you know? So, I mean, those guys, I owe my life to, but I was not knocked unconscious. I remember coming to in Bethesda, Maryland, you know, I went to the 31st combat support hospital in Baghdad for a couple of days. I went to Landstuhl, Germany for a couple of days, had family in both spots. And it wasn't until maybe six, seven, eight days later that I remember what was going on when I woke up. And at that point I was on so many pain meds that you can knock out a stable of racehorses. I was yeah. in and out of consciousness, yeah. having hallucinations and all sorts of stuff. Has, um, did, I don't know if they did I ask you this in advance. Did family like take you back into those moments? They have pictures of you, you know, did they, did they, did they recount any of that, you know, being at the hospital, they, all those different locations with you? No. Uh, you know, when I, when the word came back to the States that I was wounded, uh, my mom immediately called my godfather, Mike Roden, mm. and uh, Mike was an active duty army colonel at the time. She couldn't get in touch with him. She talked to his wife, Margie, and she said, well, Mike's on his way to Iraq right now, and I'll have him call you when he lands because he'll call me. So he called my mom and got my social security number and actually came to visit me at the support hospital in Baghdad. Wow. Right. My, my godfather. What an incredible blessing for your family, for him to be able uh, to do that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was able to put my mom directly in touch with the surgeons, you know, because when the information comes out of the Marine Corps and goes to the family, it's not the most complete information. Sure. Right. They, they had said that I was blind and they didn't know if that meant that I was blind. Like, is this temporary? Is there hope for sight? You know, anything like this, but you know, my God, in my head was crushed in. So they medically induced me into a coma because I had to go through so many surgeries. And the doctors didn't know like where I was mentally at the time. And when, you know, Mike put the phone down on the uh, pillow and I heard my mom's voice, my, my blood pressure spiked and my pulse spiked. And Whoa. the doctor said that was a good sign. That means he's still got some, you know, mental activity going on up there. And then when I went to Landstuhl, right, my dad was working at United States Europe Command in Stuttgart at the time. So he and my stepmother were waiting for me at Landstuhl when I rolled off the medevac. And then they rode with me to Bethesda on the medevac flight from Germany. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, my dad went and found a Catholic priest, had last rites done for me when I was, because, you know, the doctors in Germany told my dad, they said, sir, we don't know if your son's going to make it. And if he does make it, we don't know if he's going to come out of the coma. And if he does come out of the coma, we don't know where he's going to be mentally. He could be at a, you know, 
third, three-year-old level, or he could be at an eight, eight-year-old level, or, you know, we, we just don't know. So there was a lot of not knowing, really and truly. And my dad found a Catholic priest. I had the last rites done, you know, the whole nine yards. And, you know, I guess I'm just too stubborn to die. I was going to say, so my question is, do you remember, do, do you have memories or what are the first memories of being like, I got to fight. I'm fighting. I am fighting this thing. W were there those moments? You know, it wasn't like one specific moment, like an aha moment where I was like, okay, I, I got to make it through this. It just, at a certain point I had to get off the pain pills, right. Or the, the it wasn't even pills. It was all shots and stuff at that time. But, you know, so in September of 2004, I told the, the anesthesiologist, I want to get off this stuff because I, I can't think right. I'm, Guys, I'm that's a month. That's a month after the attack. Oh yeah. Probably about right? three, four weeks. Yeah. You know? Um, and I, I got, I got off all the, the hardcore drugs and, and all of that stuff. And I, it's at that point where it just kind of started to settle in what was happening happening to me you know uh what 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 my life is going to be like like this is what i have to deal with but you know i was in hospitals and rehab facilities for 16 months right i was only on active duty for 22 months when i got hit and then i spent almost the almost that amount of time in hospital and rehab facilities so it was one of those things it's like you don't at least for me i can only speak for myself I didn't have a moment where I was like, I'm going to beat this. I'm going to live. It was more of just going in and out of surgeries, going in and out of appointments. And, you know, you start to realize, okay, I'm not going to die. All right. Now I got to figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And that's where the brick wall is. Mm. It, for me, it wasn't so much the surgeries and all of that type of stuff. It was just that whole, I've got to, I'm getting out of the Marine Corps. What am I going to do? I was 27 years old when I got medically retired from the Marine Corps. Mm. That's, that's young, yeah. you know. That's and, a lot of life in front of you. Yeah, and my golf game wasn't on point. <laughs> <laughs> like you got a great, you got a great perspective. Your dad was an Air Force general. You know about golf, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know what the funny thing is? He's like the one Air Force guy that never even played any golf. He'd rather go ride his yeah, bike. Yeah, and yeah. I'm telling you, man. Now he would say, you know, he would readily admit them guys can go sleep in the mud. They're going to put me up in the Marriott. You know, that's a pretty good deal. But he wasn't, we, he's not we, a big golfer. We, he's not a big golfer. We have, we have a joke. If the army goes to secure a building, they surround it with strikers and kick in all the doors. When the Marine Corps secures that's a right. building, they, they drop Yeah, but when you need that eight, when you need that A-10 to come screaming in overhead, yeah. right? Laying down yeah. some fire, you're happy when they come showing when, up. When, when the Air Force goes to secure a building, they just get a six-month lease with an option <laughs> to buy. <laughs> you know? That's great. That's great. He's going to listen. To I just had yeah, in, in, the, in the Air Force battle cry is, where's the Wi-Fi? <laughs> listen, the episode before you, I just did was with a badass F-4 pilot that was in the Air Force. Right? Yeah. Don't, get, don't get me in any yeah. trouble here, Mike. Don't get it it is what it is. You know, I mean, hey, don't get me wrong. My grandfather was career. Air Force, yeah. You know, my, yeah. my, my dad's dad was, uh, was security police in the Air right. Force. And right. I've got two uncles that were in the Air Force. My uncle Chris is a retired senior master sergeant out of the Air Guard. And uh, my uncle Tim was, I, I forgot what they, you know, Man, we rich, call rich military family history here. Yeah. So yeah. my dad is one of four boys. 
Uh, his father served all four, all four of them served. Uh, my grand, my mom's an only child. My, her father was a career Marine enlisted, dropped out of high school and enlisted in 1946, did his four years in the Marine Corps. In the go to, did he go to Korea at all? Uh, no, he, well, he got out mm-hmm. in 1950 and went to the university of Florida. And then they recalled him and sent him to OCS. And then he went to Korea as an infantry platoon commander. Wow. Right. And then he decided to stay in and he finished his college and, and wound up leading first battalion, fourth Marines in Vietnam in 1967 and retired in 1974 as a full bird colonel. Wow. Incredible yeah. career journey. Okay. Yeah. He was a silver star recipient, three purple hearts in Vietnam. And, you know, my grandfather, that, his name's Ted Willis. He was a big influence in my life. He I was, bet. he was a very positive male role model for me. And he's the real reason I fell in love with the Marine Corps. Cause three I wanted purple to hearts. Like, you said three purple hearts for him in Vietnam. But yeah, I mean, he's, yeah. you know, what happened to I, him? obviously he didn't duck. Well, <laughs> <laughs> got in the way a lot, I guess, yeah. you know, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. He's, he passed away in 1999 before I even joined the Marine Corps and he never talked about his service. I, I know that he, uh, he got the Forrest Gump wound, the million dollar wound. He took shrapnel into his butt. Right into the butt. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he had a, a crazy scar across the back of his calf and a chunk of meat missing mm. on his calf where shrapnel went through his leg. And, uh, from what I understand, he had glass from the windshield of a, of a Jeep cut him. Wow. And you know, when you get three purple hearts at that time, they pull you out of country. Right. And so he tried to argue. I was going to say, I get the feeling he wasn't going to accept that. No. Yeah. He, well, you don't have a choice, but he tried to argue and and turn down one of his purple hearts because he said it was just glass from the windshield. Right. It just so happened the the Jeep hit a landmine. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, look, were those details that that was needed at the time? Maybe not for the case. Yeah. You know, but I, you know, he was a big, influence in my life. And he's the reason I want to join the Corps. Sure. I get it. You know, it, yeah. I grew up in the army yeah. and, and I, I always wanted to join the Marine Corps. Yeah. All right. I want to go back into it one more time before we talk about some other aspects of your life. But in those early months of, of that brick wall, you mentioned that wall, right? That brick wall of, okay, what am I going to do now? I also got to think there have to be a lot of moments of I won't use the full word, but like F this, right? Like well, frustration, so, you know, Brian, I, I didn't have a forehead for six months. Golly. Okay. When wow. they, they cut along that line, they peeled my skull back. They took all the fragments out, washed it out and sealed it up. And I had to wait six months before they put my cranial craniotomy, you know, before they put the acrylic plate in right. because they had to make sure all the swelling went down, all the, the lacerations healed and no infection set in before they sealed my brain back up. Um, so for that first six months, it was extremely difficult. And it's mm. just depressing, like crazy. Just, you know, you got no forehead. Sneezing was a traumatic event. And, you know, so it wasn't really until after I got my forehead in, in, in what was that, February of 2005 that my life started to pick up and then in i guess it would have been let me backtrack here july june may april Mm -hmm. april of 2005 i went to the charlie norwood va in augusta georgia to do 16 week blind rehabilitation course and that's where it started 
to switch is when I, I went through that blind rehab course, they started teaching me how to safely live blind, how to cross a street by sound alone, how to ride a city bus, how to iron my clothes safely, how to adapt different appliances like your stove and your microwave and your, your washing machine, you know, how to live independently if you need to. Um, and that is where I started to get a lot of the confidence back that I, I, I can do this. This is not insurmountable. You know, I was lucky that I had a man walk into my ICU room, a Vietnam veteran who had lost his eyesight in Vietnam in 1967 and tell me that there is success after blindness. And he took me under his wing and, and became my mentor. Yeah. Who you was know? that man? Let's tell me a little bit about him. That was John Fales. Uh, we call him Sergeant Shaft. He wrote the Sergeant Shaft veterans advocacy column for the Washington times. And, you know, John from New York, originally from Brooklyn, joined the Marine Corps uh, back in the fifties, did the Beirut landing in 58, got out of the Marine Corps. Um, and then Vietnam broke out. He was selling life insurance and he decided to go back in the service and uh, wound up in Contien in 1967 with first battalion, fourth Marines. And, uh, you know, I think it was a rocket attack that took his eyesight and he, he went through the whole process that I was going through, but he had done it in the 1960s and early seventies going back to college. I mean, he went to finished his bachelor's degree, got a master's degree, uh, went back to work, worked for, um, equal opportunity where worked for action in DC, uh, became a journalist, the whole nine yards. And, you know, this guy, didn't let anything get in his way and didn't let anything slow him down. And he was, he was my mentor and he basically took it upon himself to make sure that I was going to be all right. And I owe him a lot as well. You know, five years after we met, we're good fast friends at this time. And we're, we're having a couple of uh, drinks at the national press club in DC. Sure. And I started asking John about his service. And it turns out that my grandfather was his battalion commander in Vietnam. What? Yeah. Wow. You know, and I, I truly believe that my grandfather, even though he passed away, was was up in heaven and and found one of his Marines on Earth and sent him and to sent take him care of way. There's no yeah. there's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, I get, I get believer, right. You know, yeah, I, I, no, I got him. I yeah. got him right now. I'm chicken skinned up over here. Yeah, I'm a firm believer. And, and our listeners have heard me say this before. I, I'm not a big coincidence guy. I, I believe right. God takes action and chooses to remain anonymous about it. And that's what we yeah. coincidence. That, that's right. Your, your grandfather, Angel, winged that thing and found a man that he could send into your yeah. and with You know, and it, it, brought him with, to you. with John there and, and with, the, you know, the lessons I learned at Blind Rehab and stuff like that, I, I was prepared to go into life. Yeah, yeah. So not just the physical hurdles, though, but like, I think John helped you through a lot of the mental hurdles of just, you know, you know peace. With what it, there is there is that. Uh, the mental struggle for me has not ended yet. And, yeah. you know, I, I hope one day it will, but I think that, you know, living with a, a lifelong disability like blindness is just difficult. You know, um, I, I still got a lot of things I got to work through, but that being said, I'm in a lot better shape now than I was 17 years ago, you know? Yeah, th so. for sure. I can hear it in your voice. Yeah, thank you. Um, right. And, and just your, your, I mean, just the conversation we're having today. I mean, it's a heavy subject, right? We're talking about a heavy thing. Um, but you're, yeah. Like, yeah. The more you talk about it, the easier it gets to talk about. Yeah. And that, that's for sure. You know, every time you talk about it, it kind of, it kind of cuts the, 
cuts the heaviness by half. Right. So, I mean, I can talk about it lighthearted, you know, people ask me what happened to you and I tell them, you know, I forgot to duck, uh-huh. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, people thank for my service. I, you know, I had a blast. Thank you. You know, mm-hmm. um, but it, it is, it is a heavy topic. I've found that humor helps lighten mm-hmm. the topic a little bit. And then we can you get know, into it. Then we can talk. I mean, you can be real. Exactly. Bad. So a lot of people, uh, and very understandably so, are hesitant to approach me because they don't know how to talk to a blind person. They don't know that, you know, things like that. It, I, mean, I had never met a blind person before I went blind for crying out loud. Um, it's not a, it's not a common disability. And a lot of people are hesitant or because of my service, they, 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 they almost see you as the man in a glass case as you're almost not human, you know? So a little, a joke or a little bit of humor or something like that can really break down that wall and, and allow you to have that, that personal interaction. So you become really, I mean, just quick friends, I mean, almost brothers with John. I know you call him a mentor, but you know, th- yeah. there's, there's a lot of that happening there. And I get a sense that, you know, a year or two into physical recovery and, and, and navigating life, you talked about, all right, what am I going to do next? Right. What, what is yeah. this for me? I got a lot of, t- God's giving so, me a second chance, right? I got time on this earth. Like, yeah. let's get to going here. <laughs> I went, I got medically retired 29 December, 2005. And I, I went back to St. Petersburg, Florida, and I moved into a house, uh, there close to Tampa, close to the Bay in, in St. Pete. And I basically didn't do anything for a year. Uh, I took advantage of a few programs. I did national theater workshop for the handicap in Belfast, Maine, a 10 day writer's workshop. Um, I, I did some other things. I, I went to Ireland for my 28th birthday with actually with my hospital roommate of all people. He and I flew to Ireland for my birthday. And, um, you know, I traveled around, just did some stuff, but was doing nothing of much importance. And it was, you know, towards the end of uh, 2006, the things started to move for me, right? Because of that workshop I did in Maine, I I wound up getting asked to do an HBO documentary called A Live Day with with James Gandolfini. It's actually, I think it's still on HBO on demand right now. Did you get to meet him? I, I did. Yeah, I did. I did the TV show, the, the movie with him. And we filmed in, in November of 2006 in New York and it released in September of 07. But, uh, you know, as things started to progress and opportunities like that started to come along, I realized that I wanted more from my life. So I made a very, very difficult decision. And then I decided to move back up to the Washington, D.C. area. I moved to Alexandria, Virginia, and I decided to go back to college. Mm. Right. And that was a very scary thing for me at that time because I had uh, I'd failed out of college when I could see when I didn't have any disabilities or anything like that. So I, I went back to college, but I think also I started getting involved in, in service work in philanthropy. You know, I got a, a settlement for my servicemen's group life insurance policy when I, after I got wounded and I took some of that money and I, I donated it to Southeastern guide dogs and Bobby Newman and I, he was one of the, he's the, one of the board members at Southeastern created a, a veteran service program called pause for Patriots at Southeastern guide dogs. And, you know, it provides, uh, guide dogs to uh, visually impaired blind veterans. It provides service dogs to veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. And, uh, you know, I was a guide dog user for eight years uh, with, with my dog, Brittany. And I think that's really what 
got me focused on, on philanthropy was getting involved with that organization. So in 2006, I was doing fundraising events with them, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, that's what put me along those lines. You know, I went back to college because John Shaft kept telling me you have benefits. They will pay for you to go to school. And if you don't use those benefits, you're just dumb. You know, <laughs> Sound like a lot, a lot of candor coming out of him and, how yeah. they <laughs> you know, but I mean, Hey, John knew how to talk to me because he knew that I wasn't going to listen to fluff. I mean, he's a Marine himself. He'd gone through all this himself. Yep. So I went, I, that was one of the main reasons I went back up to the, the, the DC area is because John lived in Silver Spring, Maryland at the time. And if I was going to go back to college, I was going to go back to college near John. So I went to the Northern Virginia Community College. I actually started three years and one day after getting blown up, August 23rd, 07, I went back to college. And college is a lot easier after you just spent a bunch of time in the Marine Corps. Sure. <laughs> right. Like you start to realize that heated and air conditioned classrooms are a hell of a lot better than 130 degree fighting holes. It's a good you know? perspective, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, hell, it's college. College isn't so hard once you have discipline. Once you realize that you go to class, dude, take notes, pay attention, that type of stuff. Right. Um, and I, I did really well at Northern Virginia Community College and I applied and I got accepted to Georgetown University for the academic year 2008, 2009. Whoa. You know? Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I, I'm still amazed. And that was years ago. <laughs> yeah. So after all that, you know, after all of that, and now we, here we sit 2021, you know, what is the last 12, 13, 14 years uh, been like for you? You know, I, I left Georgetown after a year uh, and went to the University of South Florida in St. Petersburg, finished my degree there. And I, you know, I got a job. I went back in the workforce. I started working for Southeastern Guide Dogs for a few years. And I worked uh, one year for an organization here in, in Dallas, Fort Worth area, but we did veteran entrepreneurship. And then in January, 2017, I broke out on my own and I, I started a company called Michael Johnny and Motivates doing motivational speaking. I wrote a book called Vision, Developing Strength and Success in the Face of Adversity. But I think one of the things I'm most proud of is uh, I took over John's foundation. He had started the Blinded American Veterans Foundation in 1985. Um, and John passed away in 2018. And I took over as president of that foundation. And I've been, my wife and I've been running it ever since. And uh, that brings me a lot of, I don't think satisfaction is the right word, more like fulfillment. Fulfillment, yeah. And, yeah, in the sense that, you know, through my wife and I's work with the foundation, we're able to give back uh, and make changes in the lives of people like myself, blind and visually impaired veterans, you know, and through that, uh, I'm able to heal even more. Yeah. You, you've, so. you must have met, I mean, thousands of people along the way with oh yeah incredible stories like this. And I use the word incredible just because it's the only thing I can think yeah. of. Right. It's, it's, it's a great, things. great, great adjective to use that, have, that have happened to them. Um, and just, yeah, that fulfillment, right. Of, of doing something that look, look, the, the journey to get here is not one that you would have picked when you were a kid growing up, thinking no. about, <laughs> in the Marines, but it's, but it's what was placed in front of you. It's what right. was your, your destiny, so to speak, but what it's given you ultimately here, Mike, if I'm hearing you correctly is, it's giving you this real purpose. And the fact that it was John's organization, right? Yeah. You know, how quickly after losing him, were you like, I got to go do this thing? Um, you know, I mean, it was pretty much immediate. You know, when, when he passed away, everyone just kind of looked at me as, as the, the successor. 
you know, uh, and John had been preparing me for that for years. He, he taught me, you know, how to, how to work that network in Washington, DC, how to get, how to get laws changed, how to deal with the VA, things like that, uh, to, to make life better for blinded veterans. You know, with the foundation, we, we focus on research, uh, rehabilitation and, and reintegration for blind and visually impaired veterans. And I mean, that's, wow. that's the goal yeah. is to, we, we do research for, for prosthetic devices that help blind people live more independently. We have a rehabilitation program that looks, it's a grant program for a blind rehabilitation outpatient specialists and visual impairment service team coordinators at the VA to help with budget shortfalls for blind and visually impaired veterans. And our reintegration program, we're just now getting off the, off the ground, but we're just trying to help veterans get, get integrated into society, get out of the house and, and get doing active social engagements. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about that. It today, as we record this, it's 16 July, just this Wednesday, you were awarded the service act award from the congressional medal of honor society. Let me brag on you a little bit. And then we'll come back and talk about it, you probably don't want me to, but I'm going to do it anyways. Yeah. So in 2020, uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor Society announced that you're going to be awarded this Service Act Award, really for all just the incredible work that you've done in your post-military career. They've got a handful of these awards that go out. You know, so you know when you guys have heard us document the story of the Congressional Medal of Honor, they also have some really pretty amazing awards that go out. And they're things like the Single Act of Heroism, the Young Hero Award, the Service Act Award, mm-hmm. which Michael now has, the Community Service Award, and the Youth Service Award. And of course, there's tons of information about those recipients, how you can apply for those or nominate somebody for one of those at the Congressional yeah. Medal of Honor Society website. And so I encourage you to go get that. So just two days ago, as we sit here two today, days ago. Friday, that two days ago. put around your neck. So tell me a little bit about that award and, and what it means to you to receive that honor. You know, um, to get this award, you really have to think about where it comes from, right? The guys that are the, 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 the guys that are selecting these award recipients are Medal of Honor recipients, right? These are these are uh, um, some of America's greatest heroes, and those guys, after they got the medal, you know, went into service work themselves and and are great patriots and promoters of of the American way. Once you realize that, you realize the weight of the award. When when a group of guys like that decides that you're worthy, uh, that, that what you're doing is above and beyond, you can't help but feel it. You know, I was I was honored. I was blown away. I couldn't believe that what I was doing was was enough for these guys to recognize it. Um, you know, and just honored beyond belief. You guys think about those words. That Michael said at the beginning of our interview, he talked about it's heavy, right? And then the, the way yeah, that it's heavy. And you're, and you're right. There, there's, there's an expectation now, right? There's an expectation. But when you, what I find, you know, and from talking to so many amazing Americans like yourself, you know, when you're when you're constantly, you know, putting others before yourself. And in fact, I mean, the 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 way they describe this award says it recognizes Americans who consistently place others before themselves through volunteer service. The first pillar of what we talk about here on pick up the six podcast is service before self. And that takes so many different shapes and forms. You've probably been around it, witnessed it in so many different ways over the last 17 years. My entire life. Yeah. 
you know, just growing up in a military family, the, the whole nine yards. Yeah, it is. It's something, you know, you, you think what is what is service before self? Uh, it's a whole lot easier than people realize. Right. All it takes is for you to just think of somebody else. My wife has been Kimberly is, is a wonderful woman. She's been great in helping me put myself in other people's shoes, mm. you know, and and realize that. I have my own problems, but other people have their issues they deal with as well. And uh, it is it's it's very fulfilling to not have to worry about what I'm going through and to be able to be there for somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's those, it's, uh, it's those moments of, of living again. We talked about it when you joined the Marines of, of feeling like you were part of something bigger than yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even find those little moments, right? It doesn't have to be a Herculean effort all the time, right? We need a lot more of that in this country today, right? We need people to get involved in something bigger than themselves, to realize that there is uh, something larger than just the one individual in this nation. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to be that way. You go back to our, our, our communities in, in world war two and uh, meatless Mondays and rationing and things like that. I mean, if you, if you were to try to invoke some of that stuff today, I, I don't know if we'd fly. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Um, that. It, yeah. I'm with you. I don't know that it would either, but then again, I still have an optimism the American yep. optimism of when I see those oppressed in other lands, waving that American flag, it's happening yeah. right now in Cuba. They're doing, right. They're waving that American yeah. flag. There still yeah. is something there. There is still something there. There still is that fight in there. I know it is. I know it is. And yeah, you're right. They want to, they, this big, they, right. They definitely want to pull. Right. There's no doubt that makes for big business for certain yeah. individuals, but I know the American spirit can, can, uh, persevere. And maybe if we find little opportunities to just check ourselves at the door, it doesn't take much, right? you know, uh, holding a door for somebody, you know, saying things like, you're please smiling at someone, you smiling. How about, how about looking somebody in the eye when you talk to them, you know, <laughs> just there. Who's they're telling hard. you that guys, come on. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there, there are just simple things you can do that, that make make things easier on yourself. And, you know, I've also you get a lot of satisfaction out of that. You know, the the youth service uh, recipients were were just some of the coolest. There's a young man named Zachary out of New Jersey who um, his his brother has autism and he started this arts festival for for people with abilities, you know, all sorts of stuff. And I mean, these, you know, that there are these kids out in America, they love their country and want to give back and love, love their people, love the people in their community. And that's what gives you hope at the end of the day. That's when you realize that, you know, this isn't all going to hell in a handbasket. There, this is a great country full of great Americans. That's right. You know, absolutely right. That's right. And what, you know what, that's what we feel charged up about here. It's yeah. those stories. Yeah, there's a lot of crap. You know, if, I got it. There's if, a lot of crap. If, if, if you if you want to see bad, you're going to see bad. But if you want to see good, uh, there's a lot of it out there to see. That's right. That's right. That's right. And even yeah. even in this last year and a half, it's been super challenging time. We've also oh. seen people step up and answer the call. 
Yeah, it, it has been a challenging time, but I think we're I think we're coming together as a country. And I, I think that that we're starting to heal. Yep. Hopefully it's the service act award, uh, given by the congressional medal of honor society that Michael now wears around his neck, uh, with pride, uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about where they can find out information about the blinded American veterans foundation. And if they feel so called how they might be able to help you guys out. Yeah, we got a website, the blinded American veterans foundation, uh, is B A V F dot org. So Bravo alpha Victor dot O R G. Um, you know, we've got information on there, the, the history of the organization, what we're about, our board members, uh, the programs we have. Uh, also, conveniently, a donate button because we are a nonprofit Absolutely. organization. Absolutely. You Hook know? them up, guys. Hook them up. Yeah. You know, but uh, I, I think that's that's the foundation and the work we do. But, you know, and also to tell your listeners, there are volunteer opportunities at, at VA medical centers and VA facilities where you can volunteer to help. Uh, some of these blind veterans, you know, when I go to the VA uh, before, when I was going alone, before I got married to my wife, you know, volunteers at, at the hospital would walk me to my appointments, would guide me to my appointments, things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of volunteer opportunities out there to assist blinded veterans as well. Yeah. Guys lean in on that, find opportunities to be able to, uh, yeah. to, to give back there. We'll, uh, we'll put the link uh, not only to the Congressional Medal of Honor website about the award that you were just uh, given, but also to BAVF.org. So you guys can go check that out. If you feel so called and I encourage you to do so, throw them a little bit of support along the way. Michael, I'd love to, if you've got uh, friends or colleagues or folks you met along the way that, that might have stories to share as well, we might want to put our heads together on that and see if we can uh, bring some other. I, I can send you a list. Yeah. yeah I, I sure can send you a list. I'm sure you could. Yeah. Man, I've been so grateful for you. What a great conversation. We're at an hour at this point. I want to be respectful of your time and your day. I know you guys have got a lot going on. Uh, I feel like we could talk for two or three hours. I look forward to the day where we can meet in person and, and maybe have a beer and, and connect a little bit as well. And uh, I'm coming back to the East coast. So I'll be in your neighborhood. Not, not too long. My friend, we are so grateful for your service to our country, for all that you did and all that you continue to do. And uh, and thanks for, for sharing your story and, and just putting some positivity out there with us into the world today. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. He's Michael Jernigan. I'm Brian Jodis. And this has been Pick Up the Six Podcast. <laughs>